Uh, but for us as a, as a church, over the last few weeks, we've been tracking with this series, the, the community of the King. Ha, has anyone been around for the last few weeks? You've been blessed, you've been encouraged by, uh, by, by this journey through 1 Corinthians that we're going on. Now, one of the things that we've been doing alongside our Sunday messages is uh, tracking with a reading plan through 1 Corinthians. Has anyone been having fun with that reading plan over the last couple of days? Anyone have a difficult time on Friday as you were reading through that? Yeah, some of you are reading, I see some nodding heads, but that is some, you know, challenging passages of Scripture to get through this week, but some awesome, awesome truth, and and I just want to encourage you as well to to consider engaging with that reading plan. There's something so powerful and enriching about engaging in Scripture as we're scattered throughout the week, sitting down with our individual Bibles, and then coming together around God's Word to engage in that together, and uh, of course, that's what we're here to do this morning as we we come to to the Scripture. Now, as we head into the chapter that we're going to focus on today, I want to begin by by asking a question. I want to get a little bit of a feel for the room, a little bit of a feel for our community here at True North. So here's my opening question. And this is just in broad strokes. You don't have to be like fully locked down to your answer. But who here, you would say that in broad strokes, you are a rule follower? Any rule followers here? I love it. We got about, it it looks to me about 50%, 60%. I have some, you know, families raising each other's arms. Like, yep, you are, you are a rule follower. And for for rule followers, we kind of like the security and confidence that a clear framework provides. Any rule followers, you're like, yeah, Phil, that is the stuff. I want clarity. I want my checklist. I want to know what's up. And, And of course, on family games night, rule followers, there is like zero chance that you're breaking the rules. If you go past go when you're playing Monopoly, you are taking $200 exactly. You're not slipping extra notes, not slipping extra bills. And of course, you are freaked out by the next category of people. Anyone here rule breakers? Come on, own it. Own it, rule breakers. Own it with some honesty. Now, I want to begin by saying, now, I'm not making a distinction here between good and bad or right and wrong. I'm making a distinction between a disposition towards frameworks, a disposition towards rules. Now, rule breaker, I love rule breakers. Give me some of my favorite rule breakers. They're innovative, they're creative, they're visionary. And of course, they are inclined to maybe cheat on family games nights. Because like, man, the point of a board game is having fun, right? And I have more fun if I slip a little bit of extra cash when I go around go. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? There's some guilty smiles. We all like a a rule breaker on family game night. I've got a nephew, right? He is out of control, like the most nuanced rule breaker. I've ever met him. It was actually impressive. But anyway, I love playing games with him because it's like, okay, how's he going to work the system this time? But here's, here's the question. So when we think about, we think about frameworks for behavior, that's kind of what rules are. When, when we begin a conversation around rules, that's what we're talking about. And we can approach rules with slightly different attitudes depending on our personality, our experiences, and what we're like as individuals. But here's, a, here's something that I want to add to this conversation around rules. I want to throw a slogan at you this morning. And some of you, you're going to hear this and you're like, no, I hate it. I hate it. I get it off the screen. I can't believe we were looking at this at church. And some of you are like, yeah, that's, that's kind of nice. I, I kind of resonate with half of that. And it'll be, it'll be something that you remember and you've heard of before. And it's simply this. If it feels good, do it. Did someone say, don't do it? <laughs> some, some passionate rule for it. I know where you're going with this. If it, you don't do it. So if it feels good, do it. Who's heard this before? Come on, everyone's heard this. If it feels good, do it. 
do it. Now, there's kind of two, uh, two aspects to this statement that I think make us resonate with, us, with it quite powerfully. The first is, if it feels good, it's talking about meeting my desires. So if I have a desire, something that's going to make me feel good, I'm going to do it because I like feeling good. Let's say, for example, that I love to get home from work and slam a full packet of Tim Tams. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. All over the place. Applause. Fist pumps at the back, people online find some kind of Tim Tam-like emoji, put it on the comments. Now, let's say that's, that's my thing. I like That's going to make me feel good if I slam that full packet of Tim Tams when I get home. And let's say I'm going to do that every day because that will make me feel good. It'll be nice. It's a desire that I can meet as I slam these Tim Tams down. So that's one half of this statement. It's like, yeah, I, I get to do whatever makes me feel good. But here's the other part of this statement, which I think is why it actually resonates with people and why it's become so popular over the years, is because it's actually at its core a statement about freedom. It's a statement about freedom. It says, I have the right to choose how I'm going to live my life. I can ignore the, ex- the external pressures that are saying, I've got to live my life this way or I've got to live my life that way. But actually, no, I'm in control. I have the right to choose. And there's a liberation about this phrase, which I think is what resonates with people more powerfully than the reality that, you know, you get to slam a packet of Tim Tams whenever you like. But it's that you are in control. You have the freedom to choose your behavior. Now, as we head into the text this morning, the idea that Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians, is going to invite us to start wrestling with is, I'm going to frame it this way, moral freedom. Moral freedom. Now, for anyone here gathered this morning that's put your faith in Jesus, you're living your life to follow Jesus, or maybe that isn't your belief or a decision you've made up to this point, this becomes a really important idea. What is moral freedom? If I live my life following Christ, what does it mean to have freedom in how I choose my behavior, my character formation, and the choices that I make. And Paul's going to speak into this idea. And I want to take you now, we're going to go to chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Now, one of the things that's really helpful when you're reading Scripture, and particularly a letter in the New Testament, you've got to remember that you're reading one half of a correspondence between two groups of people. It's like kind of reading one half of a text chain or a message chain. And so you have to infer what the other party is talking based on why the letter is being written. Now, Paul does it for us very clearly here in 12 and 13. So he actually highlights, okay, this is what somebody in the church of Corinth is presenting with. I have the right to do anything. They're talking about moral freedom. They're talking about liberty in their behavior. They're they're basically holding on to this idea, hey, if it feels good, do it. I'm liberated to live my life however I want to do it. So Paul captures this. He says, you say you have the right to do anything. It it sounds kind of nice, right? Any rule breakers, you're resonating with this statement already. There's a few, you know, a few honest smiles and a few people inside smiling but can't do it openly at church. And uh, I have the right to do anything, you say. Now, here's Paul's counter to this idea, but not everything is beneficial. Now, what I love about this, it diffuses the conversation around what is right or what is wrong, what is good or what is bad, but he introduces what I believe is a more powerful motivator for morality and character development, which is what is beneficial. Is it beneficial for your life? Is it beneficial for who you're becoming? Is it beneficial for those that you live your life with? I love that response. And then he goes back again. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
Remember, this comes back to that idea of freedom, that sometimes when we desire complete freedom in our own moral frameworks and how we choose to live our lives, what we can actually end up with is bondage, is that we can actually be mastered by things. And as followers of Jesus, if we become mastered by something, He is no longer the master. That if I'm slamming my Tim Tams every night when I get home from work, at a certain point, those delicious, chocolatey, heavenly biscuits, they become my master. And my life starts heading in a direction that I didn't actually choose and I'm no longer in control of. You know, uh, here in Australia, we're kind of flirting with summer right now. Like, presently this morning, it doesn't particularly feel like a summer day. But we're getting to that time where, you know, the sun's shining more. When you go down to the beach, the, the sea, it's beautiful, it's blue, it's green, it's reflecting. And the beach is kind of a good place to be. Anyone like hitting the beach during the summertime? It's good, right? You know when you travel, like, you know, no one's really traveled this last year. But, but you travel to these different places, these beaches, and you go to, like, pebbled beaches and, like, volcanic sand beaches, and you're like, yeah, those beaches are kind of nice. And then you come back to Perth and you're like, far out. We've got like the best coastline in the world, right? Like we're seriously blessed here. It's awesome. But anyway, one of the iconic things that, that we'll see in Western Australia and other parts of the world, that when you go down to the beach, you're, you're going to see some red and yellow flags, right? Now, now, who knows what the flags mean when you go to the beach? Anyone shout it out for me? You swim between the flags. That, that's what it means. So what the flags do is they provide a framework for how you engage with the activity of swimming at the beach. So rule followers, you guys love the flags, right? You're like, I see the flags. I'm swimming between the flags. That's a good thing. Now, the flags, they're, they're, they're actually more than just, you know, someone randomly deciding, yeah, here's where everyone's going to swim. What actually happens is the lifeguards, they come early and they assess the ocean. They determine where the safest place is to swim, where there's, a, where there's no rips, where there's no sandbars under the breaking waves. That's a devastating scenario. And they make sure it's a safe location. And then also they put the, life, uh, they put the flags up so it can focus their life-giving discipline as lifeguards. So I've got everyone swimming right here in front of me. I can give everyone my intention and ensure that everyone, if anyone gets into trouble, there's someone here that can bring life to who they are. So the flags are there to create a position of safety that's going to benefit people. Now, all of that being said, you're like, Phil, yeah, I get how the flags work, man. I know it's, you know, technically more safe. But, you know, I'm kind of a strong swimmer. <laughs> I've been to the beach before. I, I'm actually going to walk 200 meters down from the flags, and I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah, rule breakers, again, mildly guilty. I've been this person before. And, and you kind of, you go away from the flags, and you get into the ocean, and, you know, as you're walking across the beach, you see everyone, like, you know, packed in, all the bags everywhere. And then you kind of strut a little, like, yeah, that must be nice for all the rule followers. But I'm going to go do my thing over here. And there's this freeing sense that I have the freedom to go and swim here. I'm empowered to go and swim over here. And it all feels like this expression of freedom until the day you get caught in a rip. And that freedom is taken away. And all of a sudden, you find yourself heading in a direction that you didn't choose, that you now have no control over, and your freedom all of a sudden has transformed into bondage. You know, when it comes to moral frameworks, and when it comes to a, a motivation to pursue character in my life, I find the idea of positioning so much more helpful than the ideas of good and bad. Because we could go to the beach and say, the people swimming between the flags, they're good. People not swimming between the flags, boom, boom, they're bad. 
Now, I've got no problem with right and wrong, and I believe absolutely in right and wrong. But as a motivator for personal transformation, I believe that the idea of positioning is more powerful. That we ask ourselves a question within the moral freedom that I have as a follower of Jesus, am I positioning myself in a life-giving place? Life-giving for myself, life-giving for those that I journey my life with. Or am I positioned in a place that's not beneficial? Am I positioned in a place where I'm about to lose control? As you reflect on that, I want to invite you to consider a couple of questions. So remember Paul's key ideas around moral freedom. He says, okay, is it beneficial? But we don't want to be mastered by anything. Let me give you some questions to process this just for a second. So when you reflect on your own character, maybe there's a specific aspect or arena of your life that that your mind, your heart, or perhaps even God's spirit is taking to you right now at this moment. Here's some questions to filter through it. Is it beneficial? Reflect on some questions like this. Where is it taking you? Where is it taking you? What is it producing in you? I think this is such a powerful idea when we consider the decisions that we're making, the frameworks that we're living within. What is it actually producing in my life? Is it producing something good or is it producing something else? And finally, how is it impacting others? Is who I am, the way that I'm living my life, the the way that I'm operating when it comes to my own personal character and my own constructed morality, is it actually having a good impact on the lives of others? Or is it costing people something? Then what about this? When we think about the ideas of of rules or, or frameworks or positioning, we think, okay, is it freeing or is it inhibiting? So are you heading in a direction in any arena of your life that you no longer have control of? Like that picture of the rip at the beach. Is there an arena in your life that it started heading in a direction that you've never chosen? And as you reflect on it this morning, you have a heart that says, I need to bring that back. I need to bring that back. Next question. For those of you that are following Jesus this morning, is it leading you away from your relationship with God? We talk about this idea of morality as being positioning and positioning yourself in a life-giving place. So is where you're at leading you towards God or away from God? Is it inhibiting your capacity to serve God? Or is it preventing you from going where you really want to be? These are the filters that Paul offers. And I love this when it comes to to faith or, or more broadly Christianity to say, are we defined by a desire to be, yep, I'm good, or nope, I'm not, I need to get myself good again. Like, that's, that's okay. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm saying it's limited in its power to bring transformation in our lives. I love reframing that around, am I in a life-giving position when it comes to who I am in my relationships? Am I in a life-giving position when it comes to how I'm responding as a parent? Am I in a life-giving position when it comes to my thought life or what I'm watching or what I'm consuming? Are those things bringing life to me or are they taking it away? Yeah, I want to take you a little bit further in the Scripture here this morning. 
And as we get to, as we get to verse 13, Paul's going to introduce uh, another helpful thought here around, around the body. And it helps to inform why, you know, the church at Corinth, why are they in this place where they say, I, you know what, I've got the right to do anything. I'm going to do whatever I want. Other than, of course, you know, that's a, you know, it's a kind of fun way to live, just kind of throwing off restraint and going for it. But I start to wonder, what is it that gets them to this point where they write to Paul as the church at Corinth and say, man, we can do whatever we want. It's amazing. Now, here's how Paul responds. In verse 13, he says, You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. Now, it's a little bit poetic in what they're saying here, but what they're referencing is that my body, the body, it's not going to last forever. It's temporary. And then eventually, through God's grace in my life, I'm going to have a new eternal body, and I'm going to be redeemed and resurrected into new life. And so the, the body, it's kind of, it's like, it's not spiritual. It's just physical. It doesn't really matter. You know, the, this idea was sometimes talked about as dualism, is that, that my body and what I do with my body has no impact on my spiritual self and the spiritual realities of who I am. And this is what they were presenting with, with Paul, saying it really doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter what I eat. It doesn't matter. And if you read through chapters 5 to 9 of 1 Corinthians, you'll see him speak into all these different aspects of morality around the food that we eat, around physical relationships, around marriages or changes of status, all these different, really high context, specific things to the, the church he was writing to at the time. But it all circles around this idea, is that actually... The belief was that the what I do with my body, it doesn't matter. The, the kind of the decisions that I make, the way I live my it doesn't matter that much. It's all physical stuff, where, whereas, you know, my spiritual reality is defined by who Jesus is. And then Paul then counters with this idea, and, uh, and, he, and he brings a, a specific uh, example around sexuality. We won't focus on that this morning, but more morality and immorality. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, here's what Paul is going to begin speaking into in this verse, and you'll see this show up in a lot of his teaching in the New Testament, this idea of the sacred body, that what we do with our bodies, that how we live our lives, that how we, how we make decisions based on who we are and how we relate to others is incredibly significant and incredibly important. You know, he finishes with this phrase, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. You know, when I think about who I am physically, the interactions that I have with other people, the character choices that I make in my life or on behalf of my family, you know what I think about who I am and who I am physically and how I make decisions in that aspect of who my life, it's actually the vehicle through which I give glory to God. That who you are, that your character is actually a vehicle through which you bring glory to God. You know, in another part of the New Testament, in Romans, Paul's writes that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, and that is a true and proper response of worship. That he's saying who you are, the decisions that you make, your character is actually an expression of worship to who God is. So as we gather together on a Sunday and sing songs that acknowledge the greatness of God, the glory of God, God's holiness, that's one expression of worship. What I decide to do with my body is another expression of my worship to who God is. Is that okay? We're going to go a little further here. I want to take you, and we're going to jump ahead all the way to verse 19. And Paul's going to continue in this theme of the sacred body. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Some say temple. 
I love it. It's a temple. This is a significant word in these verse, in these verses. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. Now listen to this, again, this language around freedom, and you're not going to like it originally, initially. You are not your own. You are not your own. And what Paul's referencing when he makes this strong, provocative statement is that there, when you decide to follow Jesus, you have put him in the place of lordship in your life, that he is your savior, but he is your Lord and savior. And now we live our lives following in the footsteps of who Jesus is. Listen to this. He goes another step further. He says, you were bought at a price. And what Paul's referencing in this moment is the death and resurrection of Jesus, that through what Jesus laid down in the giving of him, his body, our salvation is bought through the sacrifice of His body so that we may honor Him through our bodies. Do you follow that thread? That, that He's saying, Christ laid down His body so that you may offer your body as a response of worship to Him and what He has done. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You know, you might have heard me speak about this before if you've been at True North for a little while, but I love, I love the picture of the temple throughout Scripture. And the first time it really shows up is in the time of Moses where they have, they have the tabernacle, which was this amazing tent. They called it a tent of meeting where God's concentrated presence would dwell amongst His people. And during that nomadic time in their history, they would set up this tent of meeting, which was like the temple of God's presence everywhere that they camped. Later on in the time of David and then Solomon, the first temple is built, and it was built immaculately with the most expensive materials that, that the attention to detail was just amazing, and it was the symbolic and literal embodiment of God's presence again amongst His people. And then that temple was destroyed, another temple came, and then the Messiah stepped into our world. And on one occasion, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. You might remember this. He says, I will destroy the temple, and in three days later, I will rebuild it again. They thought he was talking about the temple. He was talking about his own life because Jesus understood that now he was the temple. He was the embodiment of God's presence and power among his people. Then, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is yet another temple. And it's not Jesus anymore, but through the gift of his Holy Spirit, the believer becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God's Spirit, God's presence dwells within us. Now, what I think is so powerful about this idea is that the temple always had a purpose. The temple was the literal place where people would go to encounter the fullness of God's presence. So now what Paul's telling us through Scripture is that our lives, our bodies, are that temple of God's Spirit in our world. So that if people want to have an encounter with who God is, if people want to see the shape of who Jesus is, they come to a temple. They come to your life. They experience how you operate, how you deal with people, how you treat people, how you structure your life, the character that's present within your heart and life shaped by who Jesus is, that we now are the temple, that we have a purpose, that in my very being I have a purpose, which is to demonstrate the power and presence of God in my life, and that shapes who I am. Now, again, notice the difference in motivation as we talk about moral freedom. Because in Christ, here's the other thing, right? And here's, here's part of what I think might have been messing with this Corinthian church back here. They understood the gospel of grace. 
that, that when you come to put your faith in Jesus, my brokenness, my sin is now taken by my Savior, Jesus. He who was without sin now has become sin on my behalf. You see, I'm redeemed. I'm saved. The Messiah has done his work in me. And no matter what sin shows up in my life, it is redeemed by the Savior so that God always looks at me holy. Not a holiness of myself, but a holiness of who Jesus is and what he's done. And I wonder for the church at Corinth, if they were taking hold of this and say, like his, his grace has covered my life, Paul. It doesn't matter what I do. His grace is sufficient. It doesn't matter what mistake I make tomorrow. His grace is sufficient. So, so I don't even need to worry about it. I can just do whatever I want. I've got the right to do anything because his grace covers my back. Now, in one sense, that's a true statement. No matter what brokenness I fall in tomorrow, God's grace is there for me. Praise God for that reality because I need it. But I'm invited to live my life following Jesus as to, to, to bear witness to the community of God, to demonstrate to the world what Jesus is like. And of course, I'm going to fail at that every day. But still, that's a driver for character in my life. Not to be right, not to avoid being wrong, not to be good or to avoid being bad, but actually Jesus invites me to be his temple in his world so that people could come and see the power and presence of God in my life. Let me take you back to the idea of rules real quick. And we're going to finish with this. In fact, I'm going to invite the, the team to come up and join us. So think about rules, frameworks for behavior, and the moral freedom that we have as followers of Jesus. Probably the, the clearest, most, I guess in some ways, abrasive example of, of rules that we have in all the Scripture, we're going to find in the, the law of the Old Testament, right? The, the law of the Old Testament was very prohibitive. It was like, you, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to avoid. This is what your life needs to look like. You need to make sure that it doesn't have any of this and make sure it's got all of this right here. And if you could follow all of those rules, which incidentally was impossible... <laughs> If you could follow all of those rules, then you would be accepted into the life of God. That if you could adhere to the law and if you made mistakes, you did everything you needed to do to get back and right before God. So behavior was a gateway to life. But here's, here's what the gospel does to the law. That the Bible tells us that Jesus comes to bring fulfillment to what the law is, to bring fulfillment. Now here's what the gospel does to the law. The gospel transforms the law from a gateway to life, to a pathway of life. That that's what Jesus does to us. So when we think about moral freedom, it's an invitation to walk on a life-giving path. That when we make a decision to say, hey, my life, my character needs to be shaped more around who Jesus is. When we arrive at that decision, we're actually deciding to walk on a path that's going to bring life and wholeness to ourselves, and life and wholeness to the people around us. You know, my heart is, as we, we sit in these scriptures, my heart is that there might be a slight shift in the motivation for character, Christ-centered character in your life. It's not about being right or being good enough, but it's actually about an invitation to walk on a life-giving path. Now, really quickly, I want to finish with this idea. Okay don't make any mistake, I'm talking about transformation in the place of the soul. 
My heart is that in ever-increasing ways, each and every one of us could grow more towards the picture of who Jesus is. I believe that's the invitation of the gospel, what it means to be a disciple. Now, if you know that it's time to change, you know, when you have those moments where, where something takes your mind, your heart, to that issue that needs some work and needs to change, I want to offer you two steps this morning. The first is to confess and repent before God, to actually name it, to say, God, I realize what's going on in my heart in this space of my life. It's not good. I'm going to own it, and God, I want to be repentant. I thank you that your grace is sufficient, and I want to walk on that life-giving path in this arena of my life. And that's a powerful thing to do in God's presence. But the real catalyst for change is alongside that confession and repentance in the presence of God is find a friend that you can do the exact same thing with. It's like, hey, man, Kel, I need to confess something to you. I need to, I need to grow, change in this arena of my life. Would, would you help me process that? You know, it's something I'm super passionate about that I talk a lot about in our men's spaces here at True North is activating the friendships that you have to have courageous, life-changing conversations. Yeah, we, we've got good friends. We have conversations about like basketball and footy. And that's fun. Don't get me wrong. I can talk about NBA for a long time. You know what I'm more passionate about? Conversations of the soul that bring transformation to who we're becoming as men, women, children. So I want to invite you to activate a friendship. There's a space in your life that you need to journey through. And you say, God, it's time for me to start walking on a life-giving path in this arena of my life. I want to invite you to do that. And in this moment, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love for you to just close your eyes in a moment of reflection. So wherever you're at, at our Meroa campus, I believe that God's Holy Spirit is there in that room. As the church gathers at Meroa for us here at Malalu, the exact same reality. And for you, if you're at home or any place around, know that the Holy Spirit of God is with you in this moment. Jesus, I want to thank you that you invite each one of us to walk on a pathway of grace. That God, we do hold on to the powerful reality that we are free in the name of Jesus. That any brokenness in me, any sin in me is covered by the amazing grace of my Savior. But God, I pray that for each one of us, that wouldn't be something that we accept and dismiss. But God, that would be a start of a life-giving journey of faith. God, I pray for any area of bondage. I pray for any area of addiction or where freedom has been taken away. Jesus, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit and the blood given on the cross, that you would break those chains. Jesus, I pray that nothing would be our master but you. And Jesus, I pray for every person in here that needs to have a courageous conversation. God, would you give us the courage to seek out those friendships and have conversations that would bring life and wholeness to who we are as individuals, to our families, to our marriages, in every context of our life. God, I want to pray and ask that every person seeking your face this morning would take some big steps on that life-giving path of following you, Jesus. God, I pray against shame. I pray against guilt. That stuff's nonsense and it's taken to the cross. But God, I pray for courage to begin walking on that life-giving path. 
We praise you, Jesus. Amen.